Uh, I'd actually like to introduce tonight's moderator, Bill Parent. Bill Parent is currently the director of the Center for Civil Society in the UCLA School of Public Affairs. Um, I'm actually proud to say that I'm a graduate of that program about <clears throat> 15 years ago. Uh, prior to coming to UCLA 10 years ago, he was actually at Harvard University's Kennedy School where he ran the Innovations in American Government program. 20 years ago, he was executive assistant to then Dean Robert D. Putnam. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Bill Parent. Thank you, Thomas. And uh, for introduction, I have a little story. And the story tells you something about Bob before I get to some of his particulars. And it also sets the stage for this conversation. It happened, it happened 20 years ago. He has no idea what I'm about to say. <laughs> One Friday morning, I came into work. It was in December. And I was telling the story that the year before, I'd built a dollhouse for my, for my daughter. And there was a dollhouse family in this, in, in this dollhouse. And the night before, it was, it was getting to be Christmas season, and the night before I was at a drugstore and I saw one of these little tiny Christmas trees on a, on a stand that you see in, in these things. I said, this would be a great, great Christmas tree for the dollhouse. And I brought it home to my daughter and I said, Molly, I got you a Christmas tree for the dollhouse family. And she looked at me and she said, Dad, the dollhouse family is Jewish. <laughs> And, you know, we were going, you know, to a congregational church, and I didn't know, but my wife explained to me that there was a new playmate named Philip Levine who had been involved in So Bob got a big charge out of this, this story, and, and that was it. So the next Monday morning, I come in, and there's a little package on my desk, and Bob walks in, and he's beaming, absolutely beaming. And I open up the little package, and he'd been out shopping, and he had to do some looking for it. And there was a little dollhouse-sized menorah. <laughs> that was part of that. <laughs> and that was a part of our Christmas, pulling that out at, uh, at every, every time. But I tell that story, I, I tell that story because it, it sets a bit of a stage for what we're going to talk about later on, because how did this girl who was raised by a, a Catholic and Episcopalian who went to a United Church of Christ church growing up and then got a, introduced to an ecumenical world by Bob Putnam end up, uh, she now is a grown-up living in San Francisco, and she's a nun. <laughs> no, no kidding. Oh, she's a nun. It's your own joke. <laughs> it's, you'll, we'll get to that in a minute. It's a, it's a, it's a none of the above, N-O-N-E. N-O-N-E. Um, in, in that piece. <laughs> it's from your book. <laughs> Bob, Bob is the Peter and Isabel Malkin Professor of Public Policy at Harvard, where he teaches both graduate and undergraduate courses. He's a former dean of the Kennedy School of Government. He himself was educated at Swarthmore, Oxford, and Yale, um, and he also uh, runs a summer program at Manchester in, in England. Um, his earlier work was on uh, comparative political elites, and uh, he did a 20-year study of, of uh, Italian government, uh, Italy, and, 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 and called Making Democracy Work. And in that, that's where the first, the roots of this, the power of association, this, this sense that comes from to Tocqueville about, about what makes democracy strong. And it applied to Italy, and it led, it was the first step to what led to bowling alone, and actually, you'll see in a little while, extends into the ideas of American grace. I know Bob, that's Bob as a scholar. I said something about Bob as a friend, but I also want to make a plug for Bob the writer, and he's got excellent writers too. Um, there's copies of the book around. It's a thick book 
but the margins are big, the spacings are big, <laughs> and the writing is beautiful. Um, so it's a, it's a real pleasure to read. Bob is a, is a real craftsman. Um, I think he's the best writing political scientist in America um, hmm. uh, in, in, in doing that. So that's about, um, that's, that's about Bob. And now we're going to turn to Bob's book. And I want to open with a question, Bob, about something that happened since the book was published, uh, an event that I think crystallizes a, a number of things. We woke up in the news one day, and we saw that suddenly there was a proposal to build some kind of Islamic community center, mosque in, in lower Manhattan. I know that I, when I first heard that, I said, that's a nice idea. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a nice symbolic idea. And all of a sudden, within a couple of weeks, this snowballed and snowballed into one of these emblematic stories about religion in, in, in America, in the world, and a, and a different kind of, of uh, story than we'd seen in, in that world. I want to ask you how you and your co-author, David Campbell, I should mention him of Notre Dame, when you discussed the mosque controversy, how did, you, how did you unbundle that after spending two years thinking about religion in America? Sure. Well, that's a, that's a really good question, Bill. Thanks, by the way, for, uh, to all of you for coming and, and to, to the various um, sponsoring organizations for having this evening. It's really great to be here and to have a chance to talk again with, uh, with Bill. And I'm glad you mentioned David Campbell, my co-author, because all the good writing in this book is by David. The really long, boring parts I wrote. Several things uh, about that um, episode, and the and the following episode about the the, um, the burning of the or the purported burning of the Quran in uh, uh, in um, in Florida. First, a lot of that um, controversy was actually driven less by religion and theology than by politics. I'm not trying to get into an elaborate political uh, discussion here except to say that I think it's that everybody who's followed that has recognized that there's an important element of politics in that. And that is actually, I'm sure we'll get back to that, but that's one of the important themes in our book, American Grace, is that religion has become much, religiosity and religion in America has become much more polarized over the last uh, half, half century, much more linked to politics. And um, a large part of the polarization is not due to theology and to religion per se, but is due to politics. So that's the first thing we had, and, I'm, and we'll have a chance to unpack that in just a second. Um, but the second point that, that may be a little more subtle is it's surprising how rare it is that we hear of in America of, of um, even planned violence on religious lines and and that I'm thinking of the of the burning of the or the purported burning of the Quran America is very devout religiously devout religiously very diverse we'll have a chance to talk about that and in most places of the world that combination intense religiosity and diversity of religiosity produces mayhem Belfast Bosnia Beirut Baghdad, Bombay, you can keep going on and on. America is very unusual in that we are 
highly, highly religious as a country, we can talk about that later, highly diverse religiously, somewhat polarized, and yet also, and this is maybe a little bit more of a surprise, surprisingly tolerant across racial lines. And so David and I, looking at that uh, case, this case of, 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 of um, tension about Islam, see, first of all, it's interesting news because it's so rare here that religion actually becomes a flashpoint in that sense. There's also something to be asked about, well, how come it's Islam? And maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that too this evening. I think our evidence suggests it's not mainly about terrorism, actually. It's mainly about strangeness. And, um, and we can unpack and get to that point perhaps later. That's, well, it's... it's one of the things going through your book that's remarkable to me is two, two things happen at the same time. It looks like things are very slow moving, and yet in the past 50 years, they're very fast moving. Mm -hmm. If you took somebody from the 1950s and they arrived here and started asking about religion, they would be very surprised by, by a number of things. Yeah. Um, they'd, they'd be surprised by the size of the evangelical uh, Protestant church. They'd be surprised by the size of the nuns, right. the, the, the none of the above. Um, and they'd be surprised by the decline of, of, the, of Catholicism and, 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 mainland, and mainline Protestantism. Right. You lay out an interesting case, and you use the metaphor of seismic shocks, which we appreciate the Los Angeles metaphors. <laughs> um, how did we get here in terms of these shocks and aftershocks? Well, in... in um Amazing, uh, American grace, I keep slipping, <laughs> slipping back into the original. In, in American grace, we, we suggest that, well, in the 50s, America was very religious, probably more religious, more religiously observant than ever in our history. Um, and then, uh, like a lightning bolt or like a major earthquake, happened, the 60s happened. Um, the 60s was a lot of things. Of course, some of you in the room will remember the 60s. It was about questioning authority. It was about anti-Vietnam. It was about the Civil Rights Revolution. It was about um, feminism. It was about, above all, or at least in part, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, um, and norms, mores in America changed unbelievably rap rapidly during that period. The number, uh, and, and the number of Americans, for example, uh, who said that um, premarital sex was, was okay, was not a problem, um, doubled in four years. And that, it doubled that rapidly because there were huge generational differences. So the baby boomers were coming of age in the 60s. 80% of them said there was no problem with, with premarital sex, whereas 80% of the adults said premarital sex was, was, was wrong, deeply wrong. Um, and that, hap that change happened almost overnight. Um, it, happened, I, it happens I was in, in college at the time, um, and I remember it very well, because my wife was here someplace, and I, uh, we were, we've been together since then. Um, uh, when we were in college, we gra I graduated in 63, men and women are not allowed to be in the same room ever, except between three and four on Sunday afternoons. I, thought, I think we were supposed to, be, supposed to be thought to be in a state of grace on Sunday afternoon. But then the door had to be opened, and there had to be three feet on the floor. Um, three years later, in that same college, there was co-ed dorms and co-ed rooms. And I can't say exactly what was happening, but I know what was happening. Um, 
And it happened just like that. And all over America, there are a group of men uh, exactly my age who are thinking, have been thinking for all these years, shucks, if only I had been born three years later. <laughs> so now most Americans, most young Americans, the boomers, experience that radical transformation as a great liberation. And to, it went together with a sharp movement in the secular direction for those young people. And church attendance in the aggregate fell very sharply, 10 percentage points from uh, about uh, above 50%, maybe 55% of all Americans saying that they went to church every Sunday to about 45. That's a huge drop in 10 years. And that's the first shock and it sends, uh, we, that produces the seculars, uh, this growth of secularism. But there were some Americans who experienced that period, not as liberation at all, but as the collapse of fundamental religious and moral norms that are at the core of Western civilization. And as the 70s opened, that group of Americans looked around religiously for some religious community in which they could be confident of those, their conservative norms being validated. And that happened to be most clearly the evangelical Protestant right. And so the 70s and 80s, there was a, an aftershock, a huge aftershock in the, other, in, the, in the opposite direction, a kind of backlash against the 60s, in which large numbers of Americans, not a majority, but large numbers of Americans moved off to the most religious end of the spectrum they could find, which was evangelical Protestantism. It did not begin as a political movement, but politicians quickly saw that they were there, and they and some, uh, some religious uh, leaders formed a coalition that produced gradually the religious right. And all of you know about that history because that's the history of the culture, culture wars and the growth of the religious right and, and the story that's familiar. What's well, a little less familiar, but the, the growth of religious right, by the way, the evangelical Protestantism, ended 20 years ago. It's, that's old news. It's not new news. Because beginning in 1990, as the, as the face of religion in America became more and more uniformly politically conservative, another bunch of young people came of age. Uh, they're the people who are now in their 20s and early 30s. And for them... They, this religious, the growth of the religious right said to them that religion was basically, I'm now speaking in their terms, religion, if religion is just about being a conservative Republican and homophobia and all these intolerant views about sex and other, other social and family values issues, if that's all the religion is, I'm out of here. And this, that's when the growth of the so-called young nuns, N-O-N-E-S, occurs. It's not a long, gradual movement the way it is in Europe. It's a very sharp movement. In fact, Bill, if you'll forgive me, I just want to show a few pictures here. This graph shows vertically, it's, the, it's a measure of the size of the God gap between Republicans and Democrats. And so you can see that for a long period of time, until 1990, there wasn't much of a God gap. There were plenty of Democrats in the pews on Sunday, and there were plenty of unchurched conservatives. And then beginning in 1990, the God gap widens really sharply. And, and, and that's the world that we sort of think of it being almost natural nowadays for conservative religion and conservative politics to go together. But you can see, if you look at the graph, it, did, it wasn't natural. Um, there was even a period back in the early, in the early um, 70s, that's, that's Jimmy Carter, in which the, there was a reverse God gap. Democrats were more likely to be religious than Republicans. So it happens very quickly. Now, what happens to the views of young people about religion? As a consequence of that, this is the next picture I want to show you. I'm not going to do slides all night, but I just want to show you some pictures. The, the orange line there are the fraction of all young people, 20-somethings, 20, 20 
year by year, who are evangelical Protestants. So you see that from the early 1970s until 1990, that's the first aftershock. That's more and more young people moving into the evangelical Protestants. And the blue line of the, the fraction of American young people say they have no religion, and that's flat. And then just as the God gap opens up and religion becomes tied to politics, there's a precipitous drop in the number of evangelical Protestants in that group and a sharp rise in the number of people who say they have no religion. Now those people who say they have no religion, the young people here, it would be wrong to think of them or call them atheists because actually if you ask them about their belief in God or even about what they think about religion, they're not opposed to religious feeling. They're not, some of them are, of course are, are literally atheists, but most of them are not. What they're turned off by is organized religion and we try to lay out in a book the evidence that it, there was a cause and effect relationship here between the politicization of religion and the, this second aftershock. So first shock of young people sends them in a, secular, in a secular direction, that's the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Other people, young people especially, go off to the, um, to the religious right. And then in reaction to that, in the 90s and, and the first decade of the 20th century. And so we're left with the world we now live in, which is a much more, America's in, is, there's two Americas. There's the religious, sorry, it's over here. There's the religious <laughs> and, and very conservative folks, and that's roughly speaking about half the U.S. population. And there's the secular and progressive folks, and that's roughly speaking about half the population. I'm not talking in exact numbers. And what's vanished over these, as a result of the shock, aftershock, after aftershock, is the kind of moderate, unpoliticized religious middle. I want to get to that, but I want to go back a little bit to that story, because I, I thought that the story, the, you're telling of the, the stories of the first shock and the aftershocks strikes me, it, it's interesting because it, it, it seems to come from the bottom up, in political youth in particular. Now at the same time, that's a very, but it seems to me a very Protestant telling. At the same time, you know, major world church, the Catholic church, which is very top-down, went through, went from Vatican II in the 60s and had its own swing to the right and its, and its own change and its own conservative swing that, that was, so there, was, there were larger forces that, that, that affecting the larger political picture that isn't, that isn't in, that, in that portrait. Is that a... Well, actually, I mean, the Catholic Church is a really interesting case. Um, partly it does fit the story I've talked about. That is, there was yes. a movement of seculars in the, in the 60s mm -hmm. off to the secular end and therefore out of the church. Right. Um, but that came, that came post-Vatican II, it was driven there, and then it, you had it, that... It was driven by a lot of things. Up, it yeah. wasn't that Catholics missed the 1960s yeah. uh, in America. <laughs> um, uh, but it's, it was, it's, a very, it's so strong that of all the Americans, all Americans who were raised as Catholic, all Americans who were raised as Catholic, half are no longer practicing Catholics, half of them. And of those, half of them call themselves Catholic, but they never attend Mass and don't attend, any, they're not really involved in the church at all. They're, I don't mean they're, they're uh, unsaintly people. I just mean they're not practicing Catholics. And half of them don't even call themselves Catholic anymore. So there's been a hemorrhage. And it's driven by a lot of things. It's mostly, actually, I have to say, not driven by the priest scandal about, about, about child abuse. That comes very late in the story and isn't mostly driving this. So I think, and, and it's driven in part by, the, by a conservatism in the, in the hierarchy. It's driven by conservatism about um, the same social, sexual, or family values issues mm -hmm. that were pl at play yeah. in the Protestant uh, world. 
just to finish the Catholic story for a second, the Catholic Church is very interesting because in the aggregate, Amer- there's been no decline at all in the number of Americans who are Catholics, even though half of all the Catholics in America who were raised as Catholics are no longer Catholic. How could that be? Just as all the Irish and Italian and Polish and Lithuanian kids or the grandchildren of immigrants from those countries were leaving the church through one door, in through the other door were rushing the Latinos. Latinos. And, and that, there's, turns out that's a balance, but what, one, one thing that the arithmetic means is that the Catholic Church now is undergoing an amazingly rapid transformation of itself. It's, it's like it's going through the same transformation the rest of the country is, uh, immigration and, and you know, great, growing ethnic diversity and so on, but in a much more concentrated way so that of all the people sitting in Catholic pews last Sunday, about 30, or 40, 30 to 40% of all the people sitting in Mass last Sunday were Spanish-speaking, not English-speaking. And of all the people under 30 sitting in Catholic pews last Sunday, 60% of them were Spanish-speaking, not English-speaking. So the Catholic Church is on the verge of this dramatic, or is in the middle of this dramatic transformation uh, from being a largely Southern and East European and Irish institution to being a heavily Latino institution. I think for the rest of us who are not Catholics, that's wonderful because the Catholic Church is the only place in America where there's, there's a lot of connecting between the older groups and the younger groups. That's wonderful. But for the church, it's going to be a seriously traumatic experience to, to go through. And that's going to come to this point, too. One of the other things, both in this telling and in the book, that I, that I thought is, is, is remarkable, at how much the long-term trends, the long-term deep trends, are set by youth culture. Mm-hmm. It just seems that when young people are coming of age and they're starting to create their values and they're looking at their church, they start wanting certain, certain things and behaving in certain ways that the church, the culture of the churches, the culture of religions follows them. And, 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 that's, and that's the changing. Is that, a fair, is that a fair assessment? Well, either follows them or doesn't yeah. uh, at, its, uh, at the peril of the church. Um, yeah, I think that's true. I think it's, it, it's, look, this is in a way a kind of a, how shall I put it, a certain kind of dialogue between young people and the established leaders. Um, the movements that I talked about, the shock and aftershocks and so mm-hmm. on, were driven in part by changes among young people. That's for sure true. But in part by the reaction or the lack of reaction of religious and political leaders. So they were. So let me take this, the rise mm-hmm. of the, nun, the young nuns, uh, which is the most recent case. If you look at it from outside, what's happening is young people after 1990 are moving in a sharply more liberal direction on issues of sexual morality, especially homosexuality. All young people are moving in a sharply more tolerant direction. You could say they're zigging to the left at just the time that the leadership, the most visible leadership of the church, was zagging to the right. So that in which the, the religious, especially the most visible, I, mean, I, I know I'm talking here about a lot, very complex, uh, diverse area of religion. That's part of the point of the book. It's very diverse. But the most visible part of the church was becoming you know, very hostile about... Um, about uh, homosexuality and raising the issue, raising referenda about gay marriage and so on, partly as a way of, of just stimulating re- turnout in Republican presidential politics. Um, it's that discrepancy between where the young people were headed and where the most visible religious leaders were headed that has produced the, the growth of the, of the young nuns. Now, 
I was actually in an interesting conversation not long ago with a with a um, a leader of the religious right who said, "Look, you're blaming that on the young on the church for not paying attention to the young people, but it was the young people who moved out there. It wasn't us. We were stayed where we always were, and it's their fault." And I said, "Well, you know, it doesn't much matter. It doesn't. Don't, I don't want to say who's who's you know who's to blame for this, but the consequence is there's a whole bunch of young people who are not." in the pews that would otherwise be. One final point, because I don't want to have you think that we believe that this rise of the young nuns is kind of like it's going to go on forever and this is secularization and America is going to become a purely secular society. America is a very inventive place religiously. American religious leaders are endlessly inventive. And you need to think a little bit now here in marketing terms. There is this new pool of young people and I can tell you what they're like, at least from the, from the surveys and from the talks we've had with people and so on. They're not necessarily hostile to, to religion per se. They, many of them believe in God. Many of them pray. They are very hostile to organized religion. And the other defining characteristic is they're kind of moderate politically or, or left of center politically. And they definitely do not like intolerance of religion. So, I mean, together we can figure that out. What would you, what would you, what would you like to, to what, if you're a marketer, let me stop using market metaphors. Jesus said, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus said, no, no, it's a religious topic, right? So I want to do a little. Jesus said to his disciples, be fishers of men. There's a pool, lots of fish, no anglers. I'm willing to bet you that over the next 10 to 15 years, there are going to be some religious anglers who are going to be trying different lures to that pond. And, you know, some of them will be failures, but probably some of them will be success. So I, don't, I think that it's likely that if we come back 20 years from now um, and have this conversation, what we will have discovered is there's a kind of a new, our, our religious landscape has changed yet again. That would be perfectly consistent with the whole of American history. Well, let's take that, let's take that to politics then. I, I, I grew up uh, in an Irish Catholic enclave in, in Boston. Um, I was six years old and John F. Kennedy was elected president, so I was quite sure God was a Catholic. That was, that was, <laughs> that was, that was pretty much a given. And then all of a sudden, uh, later in life, uh, somewhere along the line, God changed parties. And there's this great God gap. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it exists now. And, 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 and right. uh, you know, there's a lot of interesting little factoids in your book about um, Republicans say grace before meals. Democrats don't. Um, College-educated right. churchgoers tend to be Republican. Um, uh, there's, there's, there's a whole gap where God seemed to change parties. Right. Um, there's a slide. You can see it right yep. there, right? Yep. I just want you to all see there's where it happened. Okay, so go ahead. So you see that, you, 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 and there's some recent elections where, of course, this was, this was very big. And right. We're going to get to same-sex marriage in California in a, in a minute, but we oh. can bring it up now. But do you see this pendulum swinging back again? Do you think, the, or, well, and, let me and where do the nuns fit into this? Well, the, the nuns are the people who are offended by that identification yep. of religion and right-wing politics. That's exactly where they come from. But there's a more general point. Um, over this period, the last, basically the last 20 to 25 years, increasingly politics and religion have become aligned in what we now think is normal. That is, conservatives and religion go together, progressives and, and uh, seculars go together. That was not true historically. Indeed, there are, I need to emphasize this, historically, most of the major progressive periods in American history had very clear religious roots. The American Revolution, the uh, abolition movement, women's suffrage, the progressive era, 
the civil rights movement are all important moments in progressive history in America, and all of them had very powerful religious roots. It's unusual. We live in a very unusual period in which there's been this sharp connection between conservative politics and, and religion. Um, and when we, you see that happening, you see people sorting themselves out, we sort of ask ourselves, well, if people are sorting themselves out, are they, the, are they adapting their political views to follow the teachings of their religion? That is, are they adapting their politics to fit their religion? Or are they adapting their religion to fit their politics? You see what the, the two alternatives, and I thought for sure, honestly, this was the single thing that most surprised me, I thought for sure that it had to be that people would be adapting their politics to fit their religion, because I could not believe that people would be hazarding their eternal soul <laughs> over Bill Clinton or George W. Bush. I mean, it just didn't seem to me it would, that the stakes were not that big. Um, <laughs> but it turns out, and we did a lot of work on this, and I'm not going to get technical and statistical here on you, but a lot of work, and it turns out that most people are adapting, nowadays, are adapting their religion to fit their politics. So that the story I told about the rise of the young nuns, these people who have adapted, they've chosen no religion because of their moderate or liberal political views, but that's true across the board. And so one way of seeing what's been happening is we've been sorting ourselves out into these two exclusive categories, more or less exclusive categories, religious and conservative, not religious and and, uh, and liberal, if you ask me, I gotta say, as a historian, that's very unusual in America. And it seems to me, I don't know exactly how, what the future holds. Yogi Berra is my uh, saint. Yogi Berra said, um, you, you know Yogi Berra out here? He's, he's the East Coast, um, <laughs> East Coast figure. Um, Yogi said, prediction is hard, especially about the future. And, um, <laughs> And that's true, and so I don't want to know for sure, but it seems to me pretty unlikely that this, that this period that we're in, which is demonstrably unusual in American history, will, will endure forever. But it's awfully strong. You have a chapter in your book called The Echo Chamber, and, and this is in, in the secular world. I mean, the, uh, more and more conservatives and liberals read in echo chambers, and you talk about congregations being echo chambers sure. um, in, 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 in that way. And the divide, the d distrust between uh, religious people and non-religious people is incredibly wide and more dramatic than it's ever been. Yes? Yeah, but that's, that's certainly true. I'm not backing mm -hmm. away from any of that. The, title, the subtitle of the book is How Religion Divides and Unites Us. And we've been so far all evening talking about the divides part. Can I just say a word about the unites part? Um, because at the same time, uh, everything we, you and I have said tonight is true. We're much more divided religiously and politically than we have been in the recent past. But at the same time, um, there is an astonishing level of interfaith comity, that is, mutual positive feelings among people. Maybe a few pictures where I can show what I mean here. Um, we ask people, would you, we gave you three choices. Would you say that... There's little truth in any religion. Basically, religion is a lie or, or wrong. That's the yellow bar here, and it's about 7 or 8%. 7 or 8% of all Americans say religion is hogwash, basically. They don't use that language, but that's what they're saying. Or would you say that there is one true religion and the others are wrong? My way or the highway. Too bad for the rest of you. You're not in my church, so therefore you're damned to perdition. 
that's the right bar, the light blue bar, which is about 10 or 12% of Americans, or the third option we gave them, would you say there's, a, there's some truth in all religions, almost all religions have some truth in them, and that's the 80%. Now, if you look at that graph, what you see is there's a lot of misperception going on in America, because a lot of the most secular people look at religion and they say, oh, they're all true believers, they all just think that it's my way or the highway. And there are, it is true, we call that blue bar over there, the intolerant tent, they really do believe that they have the truth and nobody else does. But that's a small fraction of American population. It's a small fraction of the most religious Americans. Evangelical Protestants mostly don't fall in that category. Most of them fall in the middle, saying there's little truth in every religion. And, and so the perceptions that seculars have of religious people exaggerates how distant they are. And conversely, the perception that religious people have of the other part of the world is they think that the world is full of seculars who want to do away with religion and think that religion is hogwash. And there are, it's not like there's nothing that, like that in America, but it's a tiny fraction of all Americans, of even secular Americans, who have that view of religion. And so partly this book is designed to say, well, you know, actually, we are divided, especially in political terms, but you know, in real life, most Americans are kind of moderate. Another way, another way we asked this question was to ask people, would you, would, would, could a good person uh, who's not in your religion um, go to heaven or be saved? Now that's a question, of course, that for nuns it doesn't really make much sense. If you don't really believe in a heaven, then it's not a whole, doesn't matter a lot who's not going to that heaven. Um, <laughs> But for, you know, most Americans actually do believe in heaven. Um, strikingly, more Americans believe in heaven than believe in life after death. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> um, um, so, so it's a sensible question for most Americans. And the overwhelming majority of Americans say that you, people are not in their, a good person not of their religion can go to heaven or be saved. And then we thought, well, maybe that's just Methodists saying that a few Lutherans are going to get in. So we, so we said to the Christians that who had said, yes, they can get in, we said, how about non-Christians? Do you really mean that non-Christians can go to heaven? Now, pause for a minute. There's a right answer to that question. If you're uh, you know, a serious Christian, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light, except through me there's no, you know, you can't get to heaven. Not a lot of slack. Not a lot of slack there. But still... An overwhelming majority of Christian Americans say you don't have to be Christian to get to heaven. I had a really interesting experience. I'm sorry I'm telling stories here, but an interesting experience a couple of years ago. I was talking about the results of the research, and most of the results of the research, the, I was talking, sorry, to the annual theological conference of Missouri Synod Lutherans. Now, the Missouri Synod Lutherans, as you may know, are probably the most conservative, Bible-believing uh, denomination in America. They're very, very conservative. And they liked a lot of the studies we were, I mean, part of the research that maybe we'll get to or maybe not of our research says that religious people are, on average, better neighbors and, and more generous we'll people. They, they, they love that. Um, uh, but, they, but then the guy, the commentator said, yeah, but the part of this that just doesn't, it's just appalling, is all these Christians who say you don't have to be Christian to be saved, because that's not true. Um, and, but, and then, he, then the, the commentator said, but fortunately, you know, I mean, our flock, they know the right answer. Um, Missouri City Lutherans for sure know that you have to be Christian to be saved. And I actually had my laptop with me, and I had the data. And, and so in, the, in real time, I kind of ran the numbers. And it turns out that 65% of Missouri City Lutherans believe you do not have to be Christian to be saved. <laughs> 
gloom spreads over <laughs> the audience because these people are in charge of letting their flock know what the right answer is, and the flock got it wrong. So now the question is, how could it be that Americans are so tolerant, whether you use this measure or that measure, tolerant of other people in other faiths, of individuals in other faiths? And the answer, in order to get the answer to that question, you've got to know, and this is something else that's happened in this period, Bill, we have a lot closer personal ties across religious lines than was true 25 or 30 or 40, 50 years ago. Intermarriage is one example. It's the case where we have the best data. Most Americans, now, marriages nowadays, most marriages nowadays cross traditional religious boundaries. So when Chelsea Clinton married this Jewish guy a couple of months ago, that's a perfectly normal relationship, a marriage now. Nothing odd about it at all. I assure you that 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, that would have been unbelievable. Everybody involved would have gone ballistic. But there's been a steady increase over this period in interfaith marriages. What that means is large numbers of us, you know, our spouse is from some other religion. And it's a little hard to say that your spouse is doomed <laughs> to perdition. I mean, if you think she's gone or he's gone to hell, why in the world did you make that alliance with somebody who's, you know, bound to end up badly? Um, another important point that's happened during this period is we're switching religions more often. So about a third of all Americans, this is apart from I mean, marriage, about a third of all Americans now are in a religion other than the one they were raised in. Or, to phrase that differently, about a third of all Americans worship at a different altar or in a different sanctuary from their own parents or from their own kids. So now if you begin to play this out, and if we ask people about their, to tell us about their five closest, most intimate friends, the people that they would count on if they discovered they had cancer or, God forbid, their marriage started falling apart. Tell us about those five people, your closest, most intimate friends, your social support network, and tell us about the religion of each of those people. And for the average American, half of those people, half of the most of your closest friends are from some other religion than you. So sum this all up. Almost every American loves some other person who's in a different religion. So it's very hard to demonize people of any other religion. You're, we use the expression in the book of, of um, Aunt Susan. Um, Aunt Susan is a dear lady. All Americans have an Aunt Susan. Aunt Susan is some other religion from you. You're Baptist and she's Jewish, or you're Jewish and she's Catholic, or you're Catholic and she's none. Or, and you know what your religion says about poor Aunt Susan. She's not going to make it. But I mean, come on, you, all, you know Aunt Susan. Aunt Susan is made for heaven. If anybody's going to heaven, it's Aunt Susan. I'm sure that when I get there, if I do get there, she's going to be waiting for me. So all Americans nowadays, and this is different from 40 or 50 years ago, all Americans nowadays are caught in a trap between what, they, what their religion and theology says, you know, there's one way, and Aunt Susan. And Aunt Susan almost always wins. And that's why America has this um, really interesting situation that we're deeply polarized, we're very diverse, we're deeply believing, and nevertheless, we're kind of relatively tolerant. Now, it's not true that we're tolerant of everybody. But, but when we get into the pub, that, that's in the private realm. That's in our yep. families, that's among, in, in, yep. and in small groups and communities. And that's, but, you know, this is California. We just went through an excruciating sure. Proposition 8. You know, where, where it's a 52-48 election. It was, it was argued and fought on, on in religious terms. Sure. 
um, huge amount of Mormon money from out of state, yep. evangelical Christians against the rest of the state and, and the gay community. And, and, and one of the things that the polling showed was that there are very few soft undecideds in the middle, that people were very strong in their opinions. And those who were for no, um, it, it was largely religiously driven. So in the public realm, there's still this, this, these, these, these polls, this, this huge God gap that doesn't match up with the, the closer personal congregational family realm. Right. That's certainly true. That's partly what I meant when I said that this polarization is at least as much driven by public politics as it is by private theology. This is, I don't want to say it's a fictitious or artificial divide. Of course, the whole first half of what we've been talking about here is how divided America is because remember the shock and the aftershock and the after aftershock. We do. That's the kind of public arena. And, and if we're thinking in political terms, then we know that that's what the right answer is, and we know, and that's what we—that's how you get Proposition Eight. And I'm not trying to say, you know, it was a—it was a figment of your imagination. Right. It, it, it's a real big divide. I have to say, it's related to the Aunt Susan thing because Aunt Susan began coming out of the closet about no, I mean about 10 or 15 years ago. Many more Americans know well a person who's uh, gay or or uh, lesbian. And the biggest predictor of your view on these things, people change their minds once they discover that Aunt Susan, oh my God, Aunt Susan is lesbian? Well, maybe it's not, maybe, you know. And that process of discovering that you actually know somebody who's different and that therefore, you know, you have to recalculate your views, that process is going all the time, going on all the time in America. It's going on a little more rapidly in California than elsewhere. It's going on even among evangelical youth. So if you look at even the attitudes of evangelical youth, homosexuality, they're becoming more... Why? Because they, you know, they've encountered their own Aunt Susan. So I, I absolutely not trying to say there's not political division. There is. I'm trying to say, and it's somehow connected to religion, but that's mostly the politics that's driving that, not mostly the interpersonal relations. I can, ma I can make that, that shift now. One of the things that, uh, I don't know if you know the band R.E.M., but, but going to the first part of the book, I was humming an R.E.M. song called Losing My Religion. In the second half of the book, I was, I was starting to hum uh, an R.E.M. song called Shiny Happy People. And this is the, um, uh, a, a, an amazing chapter in the book that, all, that, that you, you make a very strong argument um, and you have a lot of evidence to show that people who are religious are happier, are more generous, are more engaged, give more to even secular charities and causes, uh, are better neighbors, and might even be better people. Well, I don't want to push long it list. so far, was, but <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, you're right. Um, well, let me, let me begin with the qualification here, because it's an important one, then I'll go on to the, the main points. Um, we were trying to look empirically. We're not, we're not in the business here of trying to, make, to enter the culture wars ourselves. We're trying to see, well, what are the facts? And, and we wanted to see, well, how about good citizenship in a democracy? Who, you know, is religion good or bad for that? And, um, and the, there is a downside to religion in, in public life, which is that religious people tend to be, in general, a little less tolerant of difference than, 
than secular people. And you can, if I find the right graph here, uh, this will show you. Um, this is basically, are you willing to allow public speeches or books or teaching by quote, an admitted homosexual. We didn't make up the language. That's the question that's been used all the time. And so the blue line is the, is the line for, in a way, support for the civil liberties of, of, homosexual, of homosexuals. It's, the blue line is among people who rarely attend church. And the yellow line is the same question among people who almost always attend church. And you'll see very clearly, this is over the period from 72 to, to 2010, um, much higher tolerance for um, the civil rights of homosexuals among uh, secular people than among religious people. Although it's worth noting the gap has somewhat narrowed over this period, but it's still, and there's a general increase in, that's, that's just one more example of how we've become as a country more open-minded about homosexuality, but it's still, even now, there's a big, there's a big significant gap. And, and that is not just only true for homosexuals, but it's true for other, it's less true, but it's still true for other, other um, what you might call outgroups, that is, less, less popular groups. But on the other hand, by dozens of different measures of generosity, personal generosity, volunteering, um, civic involvement, religious people are much, much more, much, I would say, better democratic citizens. I'm not running away from this graph. I'll leave it up there so you remember that there was a qualification to this. But in terms, for example, of giving money, religious people are, give much more money, and not just in the church plates, but they give much more money to secular causes, to the United Way or to whatever. Religious people, uh, compared to matched, we're controlling here statistically for a lot of other things, so we're matching people on all the other things you can think of and looking only at the difference between religious and less religious people. Religious people are much more likely to volunteer and not just to be church ushers but also to be volunteer in secular causes. They're much more likely to work on community problems. They're much more likely to be involved in social reform movements. Now I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that all religious people are involved in social reform movements. I'm only saying that of people of the same kind of um, a political outlook, the religious people are more likely to actually be doing it, that is to be actually out in the community um, uh, than less religious people. And this gap between religious people and less religious people is greater among liberals. Church-going ch church liberals, are not, there are fewer of them now, but they're much more likely to be actually out doing something than just kind of privately saying, wouldn't it be nice if we had a better society here, than, uh, which is the, the more secular pattern of even among liberals, so they're more religious people are more likely to um, give money uh, to less well-off people uh, on the street. They're more likely to let people cut in front of them in line. I've noticed that actually everybody, nobody in California does cut in line. You're all very well trained, or at least that's the people I saw today. In Boston, we're not. <laughs> I, I infer from that that California is a much more religious place than. Um, <laughs> did I get that right? Um, so by measure after measure, religious people are a lot, I don't want to quite say nicer, but they're, they're better neighbors, they're better, um, they're more generous, they're more likely to be involved in community life. Um, and and not, just for left, not just for right wing causes, this is not just about you know, uh, demonstrating against, against uh, abortion clinics or whatever. They're, this is true really across the board ideologically. Um, now, I so far, the, 
the, everything I've said so far about this would make secular people quite uneasy. They'd wonder whether I'm really right. Religious people are, at this point, really applauding. <laughs> um, so now I have to sort of say one more thing, which is why are religious people? Uh, and it has almost nothing to do with God. Or if it has to do with God, I can tell you how she's doing it. Um, it is that it has nothing to do with theology. If you believe strongly in God or don't believe strongly in God or if you believe in heaven or hell or don't believe in heaven or hell or you believe in a loving God or you believe in an angry God or not, we, we looked at 20 or 30 different measures of theological belief none of those have the slightest to do with whether you're a good citizen. Um, it's entirely to, and, and it doesn't matter what denomination you're in or what, uh, uh, you know it's true for Jews and it's true for uh, Mormons and it's true for Catholics, and it's true for every, every, all the groups, including, it's, it's, it's even true for people who say they have no religion, but if they have no religion and go to church a little more often, they're nicer than if they have no religion and don't go to church. So it's just, so what is it about going to church? It turns out it actually isn't sitting in the pews, it's having friends at church. So friends at church turn out, the more friends you have at church, the nicer you are. Can, you all, can I just speak loosely for a moment? Nicer means doing all these things that I've said, volunteering and giving and, going, and working for community projects, projects and so on. So, um, it's, friends at church are supercharged friends. They really make a huge difference to how happy you are and how, and how, in, 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 and how engaged you are in community life. Um, so strong is this that if you compare two people, one of whom actually does not believe in God and is not at all religious but goes to a lot of church suppers <laughs> because his wife's religious and so he goes along, and the other person is deeply devout unbelievably, prays every day, says grace, you know, thinks about God every moment, but sits alone and prays alone in the pews and doesn't have any friends, in church, friends at church. The first person, the non-believer who has friends at church, is definitely a nicer, more actively involved community citizen than the devout person who prays alone. So bottom line here, and then I am finishing. <laughs> the, first, the last book I wrote said, bowling in leagues is better than bowling alone. This book says, bowling in church leagues is really good. Uh, my question is really related to your, the first question that you posed. Uh, it's really about the, the place of Muslims in America. Yeah. Also, the, I guess it's a very fresh news about the, the firing of uh, Vaughn Williams over a remark right. that he made uh, on Fox News. So at one hand, we have this uh, idea that the, the, the people in, Amer in America are generally very tolerant that they even accept the, that the, let's even in case of Muslims, that they might even go to heaven and such. But at the same time, according to the poll, 70% of the people were against the, the building of the interfaith center. Sure. So how do you reconcile all that? So is it just a phase that we're going through this because of 9-11, the Muslims are? If you look at this graph, what this graph shows is how popular every religious group in America is with people not in that group. So. Up, and the vertical axis is they're very popular, and, the, and up the top they're very popular, and down at the bottom they're very unpopular. So, starting with, and the size of the dot is how big the group is. So, the most popular religious group in America are Jews. Now, you may be shocked at that. If you're Jewish, you do not believe that fact. <laughs> um, and, I, and later, afterwards, I will have a meeting. We're going to have a shoal here at the back, and I'm going to explain to you why that's true, but just let me drop that there for a moment. Then Catholics are the next most popular group in America, among people who are not Catholic. 
Now, keep in mind, those are two groups that historically were outgroups in America, and they are today the two most popular groups in America, closely followed by the mainline Protestants, that's the Methodists and the Presbyterians, the kind of ordinary, once upon a time, dominant groups in America. Then you drop a little bit. Evangelical Protestants are not quite as popular, and they're about at the same level with nuns, that is N-O-N-E-S. <laughs> so evangelicals are a little more popular than people who have no religion, but they're not a lot more popular. But they're all sort of above the the middle, middle line, that's what the, the average, there, the line across shows. And then we come to the three less popular groups in America, Mormons, Buddhists, and Muslims. And what's characteristic about those three groups? They are groups that are small and living in concentrated places, and most Americans have never met a Mormon or a Jew, I mean a Mormon or a Muslim or a Buddhist. Now, if you thought that this was mainly about terrorism, and we wondered about this, which is why we ask about Buddhists, if it's mainly about terrorism, why in the world are we so disdainful of Buddhists? I mean, Buddhists are the most... I mean, how many people here have heard of a Buddhist terrorism plot? <laughs> None, right? But the average American is kind of uneasy about Buddhists, and only a little more uneasy, about, uh, more uneasy about Muslims than about Buddhists. And I don't think it has to do with, uh, you know, the notion that actually it'll turn out that behind Al-Qaeda is a Buddhist. Um, <laughs> I think it's that we just don't know them. And that was, fits with the story that I've told, None of us have Buddhist or Mormon or, or Muslim Aunt Susans. We didn't used to have Catholic and Jewish Aunt Susans, but now many of us do. Is it clear what the story goes? I'm actually pretty optimistic, but it'll take, you know, it, it took decades before anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism Building a mosque is not controversial in Los Angeles. I'm glad to know that, and I, and, and, I mean, I actually do not know the, number, the fraction of, Amer of, of, of Muslims there are in, in uh, Los Angeles, but I actually am willing to bet that it's higher than almost any place in America except maybe for Dearborn, okay. Michigan, which has a lot of... I was listening to KP, uh, KPFK today, um, uh, your interview on that radio station, and I, I think the first question was kind of interesting that you got, how quickly someone jumped to the conclusion that your book was a theological treatise as opposed to yeah. a sociological study. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, you, if you've heard that happen before. We thought we could, you know, kind of strike out a kind of middle of the road, call them as we see them, fact-based account of religion in America, and now we're getting hit. I mean, actually, most of the reviews have been extremely positive, but we tend to get hit from both sides, and somebody said middle of the road is actually the place most likely to be hit uh, from both directions. And, and so there are, some, there's a, there are some people who, that, the person you called was a very fervent atheist, and he thought I was somehow defending religion, he didn't like that, and I assure you that there, we get some of that comments, and we also get some comments from the other side that are, think that I'm, you know, trying to destroy the role of religion in America, and, and so, but you know, I mean, look, the fact that, I mean, joking aside, this is, of course, an issue on which everybody in America has an opinion. And so it's not surprising that if you write about it, you're going to have people who disagree with you. I, mean, I would have been shocked if they didn't disagree with you, actually. There's a point that you made in, in, in the Bowling and Long Years, and, and it's about, and this is the blogosphere, you had the chart with the, the big, tolerant middle, two intolerant little bars on the side, those tend to be very, very loud. And they tend to be very, very loud in blog commentaries. Oh, sure. And anonymous telephone calls to... 
talk radio, right? But that's, that's right. I don't, look, I don't want to, we've got to be really careful, because one way we stay tolerant in America is to be sure we say it's perfectly fine for them to, for each of those sides to have their views. And I re- genuinely believe that. But one consequence of, of what Bill has just said is this misperception. It's why we have the impression that we're divided into these two angry sides. When you could look at that graph, and we are not divided in that. In personal terms, we're not divided in that. And, and so partly what we're trying to do is to say to everybody in America, come on, cool it, right? We actually are more mature and more adult and more, at least in our religion. About our politics, I'm less sure. But in our religion, we're, we're, we're not nearly as, as crazy as you would think if you just listened to the, you know, extremes. We've seen kind of a regionalization of political divides across the country in terms yep. of the West Coast, East Coast, in between the Great West, the Southern area of the United States. I was wondering from a political perspective, um, what trends do you see coming or what trends have you seen in your research right. on religiosity tra- areas in terms yep. of uh, the United States? Uh, what, what has happened and what, what do you see for, uh, foreseeing in the future? Religion. Back in the 50s and 60s, there was a very clear map of religiosity in America. It doesn't, doesn't matter what you use, church attendance or frequency of praying, or belief in God or all that. Um, religion declined with a square of the distance to the Mississippi River. So the further you were from the Mississippi River, the less religious you were. So the less, least religious parts of America were, well, actually the least of all is Hawaii, and then Alaska, and then down the West Coast, and then almost as irreligious was Maine and Vermont and New Hampshire where I live and the, the Bible Belt in, those, in that period ran up and down the Mississippi River so the really really religious parts of America were it's true Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi but also Iowa and Minnesota and North Dakota and South Dakota and there are a few exceptions to that Utah turned out to be more religious than you'd think given where it's placed but I think we know the answer to that um, and um, and and, less, and Nevada was a little less religious than you might have guessed it would be, but, um, <laughs> but it was a very clear pattern, and it was not north-south. It was middle coasts. Um, what's happened as a result of the shock and, and two aftershocks is that religion has come to be much more concentrated in the south. So the northern, which was kind of very religious but kind of moderate, that's the Wisconsin and, New, and North Dakota and South Dakota and Iowa. That They've stopped being quite so religious because that kind of religion, the kind of more moderate kind of religion, has sort of fallen out of favor. So we now, religion is now very much a southern phenomenon, and it didn't used to be. There is more, in that sense, regional segregation. It's actually true also of our politics. You know, we, are, we are kind of sorting ourselves out. Unfortunately, we're sorting ourselves out by our politics as much as by our religion and by our social class. And, and that, if you sort of play through what that means, it means we are less, um, this geographic sort means we're less likely to know people who are unlike ourselves, and that's not good for, the, for our politics. or it, it makes for a less moderate politics and a less moderate you know, religiosity. If you talked about, in terms of people making religious choices based on political preferences, why have nuns expanded instead of people that don't believe in anything becoming like Unitarian Universalists or something undemanding? I mean, what I honestly think, but this is going beyond the evidence, it's just what I think from looking at the data and from, you know, as part of the study, we, went, we spent a lot of time 
in, in uh, churches and synagogues and mo- not mosques, but churches and synagogues and other religious communities all across America. So I've, I've sat and talked to a lot of people as well as doing these surveys. I think that, they, that the, the kind of religion that would be most likely to attract these, attractive to these younger people ha- is not quite so intellectual and is a little more emotional than Unitarian Universalists as I have encountered them are. Actually, in our research team, the research team that did this was incredibly diverse itself. So we had a Catholic priest and we had a Unitarian Universalist minister and we had a couple of Jews and a Quaker leader and a couple of Mormons and it was a very diverse group and, and we talked about this question. What would, what, would the, what would the right lure be for that pond, if you see what I mean? My guess is it will have to be a little bit like in terms of liturgy, a little bit like um, some of the evangelical megachurches. That is, it'll have to have maybe some Pentecostalism, maybe some, you know, some emotional feeling as well as, but it, it'll be shorn of the political, the hard political uh, conservative politics. Now, of course, you know, remember back to Yogi Berra, I could be wrong and I'm not in the business of, of being a religious innovator myself. I think it's an open question what kind of religion might appeal to that group, um, but that's my untutored guess. I did a lot of work uh, with an interfaith organization called the Community Institute there, and one of our trips was to Jerusalem, I'm a pilgrimage that we did, and one of the things that I noticed there, which goes to your point, is that even though Jerusalem has a lot of diversity there, everything was very separate. Separate schools, separate services, everything. So what I wanted to know is what role is the interfaith movement that I think has been kind of burgeoning around the world, what role is it playing in our political environment today? I'm, I want to stick to the more empirical side of that because I don't want to kind of become an activist here in this, in this setting. But I, it seems to me looking at the data that interfaith movements are a very important way by which we can reconcile what is otherwise hard to reconcile, relig- true, re- really being religious, really being diverse, and being tolerant. And I think, therefore, that the kind of movement you're, you're talking about is, um, is a really important, uh, a really important part of the story. And actually, I can another example of the, that illustrates the same Aunt, Aunt Susan principle is um, African Americans, probably many of you will know this, African Americans are by far the most religious group in America, by far, in terms of any belief in God or saying grace or whatever. Uh, they are actually also the most progressive group in America, the most politically progressive group, the most solidly democratic group. So they're an important exception to basically all that I said we, we've been talking about here about religion and, and politics. Um, and, and in many respects, African Americans look in their political outlook actually a lot like evangelical Christian, evangelical, white evangelical Protestants. Um, but they are, whereas white evangelical Protestants are quite hostile to uh, Muslims, um, Black evangelicals are actually not at all hostile to Muslims. They're pretty open. And if you ask, well, how could that be? The answer almost certainly is that there are a lot of black Muslims in America and therefore a lot more Aunt Susans. That is, Muslim Aunt Susans in the African-American community than there are in the white evangelical community. So I think I'm just giving a practic- one specific example of, of ways in which these, these interfaith ties, I think uh, they do have real effects we can we, causal effects. We can we can watch people. I didn't say that we've interviewed people twice, so we can watch people change, and as they get more interfaith friends, they become more tolerant of all of all faiths. Therefore, I think that the interfaith movement is a 
is exactly the right kind of direction to move. In the closing chapter of Bowling Alone, you attempted to strike a kind of optimistic tone, and you laid the, the atmosphere for maybe, for, for maybe changing things. And you described that, among other things, we didn't have a big crisis on our hands, we didn't have a recession, we, so on and so forth. Yeah. And a year later, Right, 9-11. It sort of was blown out of the water. So right. I just wonder if you, if, if you reflect on that. Sure. Um, uh, thank you very much for the question and for re recalling that last chapter. Um, this is, and I'm going to respond, try to respond briefly, but it's actually on the subject of what happens after Bowling Alone rather than on the question of American grace. Um, uh, to good news and bad news. Right after 9-11, there was a huge spike in community mindedness. We, were, we had the country wired, we were checking all the time about social capital and goes all these, the, like the seismograph for social capital for connectedness, community mindedness spiked among all Americans in New York and not in New York, old folks and young folks, old folks means people like me, young folks mean people, younger people. It was up there for about six weeks and six months later it, you, it was gone and you couldn't, it was like back absolutely to flat lining level, with one important exception. People, young people, people in school and maybe in college, at the time of 9-11, that spike has not yet gone away. They are still more community-minded than young people used to be. There are a lot of bits of evidence that show this. I have to say that one of them is actually comes from UCLA, the annual it's called the, Harry, uh, the Higher Education Research Institute at UCLA for many years has been, has been uh, gathering data on young people's um, uh, civic engagement and those numbers that they collect every year have been going down steadily for about 40 or 50 years and then at, right at, after at, right in, in 2001 those numbers suddenly shoot up and keep going up. Now there are two possible explanations for that. The most obvious and most plausible explanation is that Bowling Alone was published in 2000. <laughs> um, but as a good social scientist, I have to imagine there could be other explanations for the, for the upturn, and the most likely one is 9-11. Is that's the good news, and, and actually that's, that is where the Obama wave came from. It was there in the data before Obama became, came on the scene. He's a, he's a very gifted political leader, so he took that potential and moved it in an mo even more serious direction. That's the good news. The bad news, which I'll say very quickly, but it deserves a lot more attention than I can give it right now. That trend toward growing civic engagement, which is reversing the whole Bowling Alone story, that's great, is entirely concentrated among upper middle class kids. For working class kids, especially white working class kids, but also non-white working class kids, this is not a matter of race, it's class, those trends are going steadily downwards. Working class kids are now much less likely to have friends at school, much less likely to be involved in community projects, much less likely to go to church, much less likely to spend time with their parents, much less socially trusting than working class kids used to be. Whereas middle class kids coming from middle class backgrounds are more trusting, spend more time with their parents, have, are more involved in community life, go to church more than middle class kids used to. So the good news is half of our young people are moving in the right direction. The bad news is we are yet again seeing this to Americas, this time defined in, in social class terms. Sorry, that's a long answer to a really complicated, interesting question. 
You mentioned that there is belief in heaven, but not necessarily in an afterlife. And so if you could help us wrap our heads around what that means. Uh, and my interest in that is also, given that it is such a religious nation, why is there so much fear of death? <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, thanks very much. It's a really no, no. no I'm I'm joking. It's a it's a set of really really big important uh, tough questions. First of all, um, I don't want to say that the belief in heaven is vastly larger than the, in the belief in the afterlife. It's just a little interesting that it's bigger at all, because that means there are a significant number of Americans who think I'm going to heaven, but where? When? I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of, maybe they're thinking of, you know, a really nice weekend at Disneyland or something. I don't know what, what heaven means, but at any rate, it's, I'm being humorous. I'm, it's true fact, but I don't want to push that, that particular comparison, belief in the afterlife and, and heaven, uh, too hard. The other question is, of course, a deep question, and, and, and um, uh, there is we talked earlier about how different generations have different levels of religiosity, and that's for sure big, big time true. You can see that in all the data we've analyzed. But there is also overlaid on that a life cycle phenomenon. That is, over the course of any individual's life, um, they start actually, the, the individual starts at a relatively lower level of religious engagement, especially in college years. That's when it's at its lowest. And it then goes up when, with marriage and and having kids, people who get married and have kids tend to be more religiously involved. I don't mean necessarily more devout, but they're more involved in community, religious communities. And then it's sort of, so it goes like um, high school, college, marriage and kids begins rising and sort of levels off at that somewhat higher level for a long time. And then past the age of 60, almost universally, it tends to grow. That is, people tend to sort of in their 60s and 70s and 80s, keeps growing. More church attendance, more belief in God and so on. Um, and then as you get into the 80s and 90s it begins to fall because you know people are sick and they just can't, can't get off. I assume, although I don't ever know, I'm, actually I'm not sure why that post-60s increase, my hunch is nearer my God to thee. People are kind of hedging their bets as you get a little older. I'm now in that age bracket myself and I'm beginning to think, hmm, maybe I should take this a little more seriously. <laughs> um, so I'm joking of course to hide you recognize what I'm doing. I'm joking to hide the seriousness of death. It's a really big problem, and I don't think it's... <laughs> Next question. Sure. <laughs> we have... uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Jesus Hermosillo. I have two very quick questions. One is, given that uh, the Jewish population is so small in the U.S., uh, I, I would think that not everyone in the U.S. has met uh, a Jewish person. Why do you think that they are the most religious, uh, the most uh, popular religious mm -hmm. group? And the other question is: Do you uh, can you say a little bit more about uh, the traumatic changes going through the Catholic Church, given its um, the Latinoization of of the church and also the you know liberalization of uh, of younger generations in terms of uh, sure the religion? Thanks. Um, first question: um, It's not only. It is true that. A large number of Americans nowadays claim that they have a Jewish friend or, or, or know a Jew. Or, and that was historically true as a kind of a joke. Some of my best friends are Jews, but actually it's now not a joke. Um, but the more serious answer to the question about the decline of anti-Semitism in America, this is a little bit off topic, but I, I should say I'm Jewish and all the people in my synagogue 
they sort of think, Bob, that's wonderful. I'm really glad you're writing about religion. You're so, you're so nice and smart, but you got it wrong on Jews. They do hate us. Um, <laughs> so, so I've done a lot of work into the history of anti-Semitism in America, and it's a quite interesting story. The Holocaust, this horrible thing, killed anti-Semitism in America, and it did it in the following way. I don't mean there's no anti-Semitism. Of course, there is remains some anti-Semitism behavior and so on, but if you look at long-run trends and attitudes toward Jews in America, and we have good data on this going back into the 30s, it's kind of high levels of anti-Semitism, and then in 1946 it suddenly drops. Why is that? Because it became impossible at least to say that you were hostile to Jews. And there was a huge generational effect. The young people who came of age after 1946 had much lower levels of, of anti-Semitism expressed, and then it kept going down. And and, and the serious anti-Semitism basically died off because it was limited to people who had formed their attitudes before 1946. Now, I think what was going on was initially it was political correctness that sort of ended people being able to say they were anti-Semitic, but that had the effect that it kind of suffocated anti-Semitism because it was no longer possible in public and then even in private to, you know, to say... I'm not going to try to repeat it here, but to say the ugly anti-Semitic things that many of us of my age can easily remember having heard, but they, you just don't hear anymore. And so it's an interesting case in which political correctness actually had the right effect. It kind of exterminated... Sorry, that's a terrible choice of words. <laughs> I'm really embarrassed. It... Is my face red? <laughs> um, it, it suffocated anti-Semitism. And, and, and that's, I think, the larger explanation. for. And this is, by the way, not just me. It's the ADL and everybody who seriously studies anti-Semitism would more or less agree with what I've said. Um, the second question is about the Latinoization of the Catholic Church. Big, interesting topic. Um, I'm in the midst of some interesting discussions, actually, with the, the hierarchy. Um, uh, the National Council of the... Whatever it's called, the Council of Bishops. or Yeah, Council of Bishops. Um, it's... It's going to inevitably change the Catholic Church in, in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, Latinos are, at least first and second generation Latinos, are much more conservative on social issues, like homosexuality and all the other social issues, than non-Latinos. Inside the church, non-Latino Catholics are now called Anglos, whether they're from, you know, historically came from Ireland or, or Italy or whatever. So Anglo-Catholics are more liberal on social, is, on social issues. Latino Catholics are much more conservative. Anglo, uh, Latino Catholics are much more conservative um, theologically, than, and they're much more likely to say the, you know, to believe in papal infallibility. Much more likely to oppose um, uh, women in the priesthood. The vast majority, actually, of Anglo Catholics would favor uh, women in the priesthood, but the majority of, of Latino Catholics oppose women in the priesthood. So, in some respects, it's going to move the church as a response to the fact that it's going to be increasingly Latino, it's going to move it in a conservative direction on some issues, the ones that I've mentioned, and it's going to change liturgy. There's going to be more, you know, um, uh, you know, mariachi bands in, uh, in, in church than there are now. Um, but on economic issues, it's going to move the church in a leftward direction, and especially, above all, on immigration. The church has to be. I, don't, I mean, I'm sure the church has good reasons, theological reasons, for being, um, being sympathetic to immigrants. But it's also true that the, the population of the, of the Catholic Church is becoming unbelievably heavily first and second and sometimes third generation immigrants. And the church, 
I know that the, 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 the cardinal or the archbishop here in, in, in Los Angeles is being as a strong advocate for immigrant rights, and that's wonderful, I'm, so am I. Um, and I'm sure he's doing it for all the right theological reasons, but it also fits his constituency. So it's good. the general thing is gonna, it's gonna be interesting for the church, it's gonna force it to have important changes uh, in liturgically and theologically, it's gonna push it to the right on some issues, but push it sharply to the left on other issues, including economic issues. In the role of government. And, 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 yeah, and, and, and Latinos are much more supportive of a strong role for government, as, as Bill says, than, than Anglo-Catholics are. Can I just say what a terrific audience you've been. I really appreciate the chance to exchange thoughts with you. I look forward to doing it in the, in the, exchange, in the, in the reception afterwards. And I want to really thank uh, all of the hosts and, and, and even Bill. <laughs> it's a bit of pleasure having you. Thank, thank you, you so all. much.